forever. Dog. Just between us. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and therapy fanatic. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm a gay therapist. (laughs) I'm not a gay therapist, but I have a gay therapist. (laughs) So this is just between us. And normally we are a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. But for the month of May, we are doing a mini season called Mental Health 101, where we are talking about some of the most important topics of mental health, these broad topics, and then we're bringing in expert guests to get super specific about them. And so today we're talking with Esther Boykin all about how to find the right therapist for you. And that is a topic that you guys have asked us to do for a long time. And so this is a part of our eight part series. You can find the other parts if you go to the website for JBU or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. But this one, we're going to say, how do you find the right therapist for you? What should you look for in compatibility for a therapist? Esther gives us all the different types of modalities of therapy. It's comprehensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm super glad to do this. And but I also want to say that during this time, it is extra hard to find an available therapist. Right. So some of you might be like, you know, listen to this episode and feel super energized and and start that search only to find that maybe the first couple people you reach out to are booked. And so I just want to take this time to be like, that sucks. And I wish that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. But don't give up. If you want a therapist, if you realize that this is a time in your life where you could really use that extra support, we might just have to do a little more research than we would have had to do pre-pandemic. Right. Because, you know, more people are, which is great, more people are going to therapy now, but it also doesn't mean that there are more therapists. So, (laughs) right, right, right. Don't get discouraged. And I said, how did you find your current therapist, Allison, the one that you were going to? It was so long ago. I think that, I can't remember if my GP recommended her or my therapist recommended my GP, but we have some link. We talk about it in the episode, but but psychologytoday.com is an excellent database filled with tons of therapists where you can go in, you can search by where you live, you can mm-hmm. search by what they specialize in. It's like almost like a dating website where you get a little bio, everyone has their own profile page. So that's a really great resource. And, and so this is just our little pep talk that even if at first it's hard to find somebody who's available to keep looking. And there's some more tips and tricks about looking for maybe interns um, mm-hmm. and people who are getting their licensing hours and how that might be a fun little way to get more accessible and more affordable therapy. I also want to say that you are totally within your rights to ask about social justice issues with a therapist. I specifically wanted a gay therapist. I specifically wanted a therapist who understood leftist ideals. And so that is a thing that you are completely within your rights to ask about. And we get into that a little bit here in terms of finding someone who's a cultural fit for you. So stick around for our incredible interview with Esther Boykin. just between us it's mental health 101 and we're talking all about how to find the right therapist for you 
Our guest today is Esther Boykin, a psychotherapist and the CEO of Group Therapy Associates, a private practice in the DC metro area where she works every day to make mental health accessible, innovative, and culturally relevant for all people. In 2017, Esther launched Therapy is Not a Dirty Word, great name, a brand new division of GTA designed to bring mental health conversation outside the traditional office setting and into the community through media, webinars, social events, and retreats. Hello, you are the perfect person to talk to about this. (laughs) How are you guys? It's definitely like my favorite thing to talk about. So yeah, ask all the questions so that I can tell you all the things that I like to say. Well, first of all, We have people clamoring to know, how do you find the right therapist for you? I think there's like two ways to approach this. And I think we'll probably cover both where one is, what is the right theoretical orientation for you in -hmm. terms of what type of therapy would be most effective for what you're trying to to tackle? And then also how to find the right fit culturally for you. Mm -hmm. And so either one, if you want to dive in, but I think it's kind of important to say that those are sort of two different things that I'd want to discuss both of. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. And I like that you divided it that way, because I think that those are sort of the two major questions to ask yourself, right? Like, is this person the right fit for me as an individual? Because therapy, first and foremost, is a relationship, right? Like, Mm -hmm. sometimes I joke, it's a little bit like dating. Like, it's not enough to like, just really like somebody, they kind of need to check the boxes, but it's also not enough to check the boxes. So like the the right theoretical orientation, the right skill set or expertise isn't enough to necessarily guarantee it's the right therapist. So starting with kind of personality and like, I always like to encourage people, like think about this really like dating, like an interview process, like Mm -hmm. therapy is meant to be collaborative. So you want to ask, I'm a big advocate for ask your friends. Like that's the five second answer is, Tell everybody in your kind of like immediate circle that you feel comfortable that you're looking for a therapist. I promise you, your friend, your neighbor, your hairdresser, your doctor, like there is somebody in your life who probably knows a really good therapist that would be (laughs) a good fit for you. What about like, if it's someone you're in a close relationship with though, is it appropriate to be seeing the same therapist as them? It's a very personal thing that you need to ask, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and it does require a certain level of honesty. So like, if it's someone in your life who you feel like, hmm, is it always going to be straightforward about like, if something makes them uncomfortable, then maybe don't ask them <laughs> because it is really personal. It's not necessarily, and as therapists, that's also part of our job is like, it's not necessarily that it's unethical or inappropriate to see two best friends or to see, you know, like I definitely have done individual work with two members of like a couple, mm-hmm. but it, it really does get into like a very individual perspective of like, what is it that we're talking about? Like, if you want to do individual therapy to talk about your partner, then probably your partner's therapist is not the right therapist for you because they also have a relationship with that person um, and are working on things. And not always because of the therapist, but because how you will feel or how the other person will feel in session. You want your therapy space to feel sacred. Like, this is my place to say whatever I want to say and not worry about is this going to come out in someone else's session or any of those things? And not because as therapists, we know better. We know we're not going to do that. But if that's a lingering worry in your head, it's going to undermine your progress and your ability to kind of cultivate that relationship. When you're looking for like, if we're going with that part of just like that right fit, that right cultural fit, like do you, 
have anything in terms of like, if you should be looking for someone of the same gender, of the same background, do you think that matters as much as just like the vibe that you have when you're in the room with them? First and foremost, it definitely is like, it's much more about the vibe than it is about necessarily being the same gender, the same race, the same religion, or, you know, any pick and ori, like a particular characteristic about who we are. I will also say that like, I think sometimes seeing a therapist who resonates with you, like just looking at them, right? Like I want to talk about my struggles as a woman in the workplace. My comfort level, even starting that conversation with another woman is Mm -hmm. very, very different than if I'm seeing a male therapist. There are amazing male therapists who could probably do great work with you. But again, it's that place of like being really, I think part of the search is being really honest with yourself about what's really going to be important. Like, you know, as a black woman, sometimes it's really nice to have a black female therapist. But the truth is like right now, my therapist is a white woman and she's fantastic. And the things that I wanted to be working on are things that I feel like we resonate and kind of click around. And so like that relationship works. And so I always ask people to like hold it in balance. Mm -hmm. It's important, but don't let that be the only reason that you don't at least have a consultation or try therapy with somebody if they're checking all the other boxes, right? Like, If you like their website, you like talking to them on the phone, they've got the right expertise for what you want to work on, but they don't look like you or share some very particular cultural relevancy, don't completely rule them out. Like it's worth maybe a shot at one session. And if you feel like you have like an oopsie with a therapist sort of, where like (laughs) they say something that like rubs you the wrong way, maybe in that first session, is it worth like addressing that? That's such a good question. Not to harp on my like dating analogy, because in dating and relationships, in any relationship, not even just dating, like in any relationship, it's not the mistakes people make. It's what they do when you tell them that they've done something that bothered you. Mm-hmm. That is really like the kind of hallmark for like, does this work or does it? And so right. as soon as you have an opportunity to tell your therapist that you didn't like something, I think it's really important because their response to that will tell you everything you need to know about whether or not this is going to be a good fit or not. Yeah. A, a good therapist, a good fit is going to honor however you feel. They're going to take it seriously and they're going to actually spend some time in the session processing that, right? Like, what was it about that? How can I show up differently? How do we navigate that? And, you know, I definitely, you know, I run a practice. We've got a lot of associates. I, I've had sessions. My associates have had sessions where the end of that becomes the therapist saying like, do you feel like this is a good fit? Do you think you might be more comfortable with somebody who shares your racial or cultural background or somebody who shares your gender or sexual orientation? Do you think that would be helpful? Because therapy shouldn't be a place where you feel like you need to teach somebody else about your, like that that shouldn't be the primary focus. You're going to teach your therapist all about you mm-hmm. and the things mm-hmm. that matter to you. But like, it's not a place for you to educate them on what it means to be a woman or you know whatever you're mm-hmm. and I think it's also like a good marker if you feel like your therapist feels like you know your own story like that you are the reliable narrator that you are the one you know that they're getting an insight into your world versus them telling you how your world works from their observations yeah. does that make sense <laughs> absolutely that's actually the theme for you know May's mental health awareness month like that's actually my theme for the month is that therapists are meant to be humans, not heroes. And like, I say that also, like, we're not gurus. We are not Mm -hmm. sort of the end all be all expert. You are the expert about you and your life. Like our Mm -hmm. job is to maybe help you see it a little differently to you 
explore some things that maybe you've not asked questions about. But ultimately, yeah, you should feel like your therapist is somebody who is deeply interested in who you are and how you experience the world rather than somebody who's telling you how you're supposed to live life. Yeah. And that they trust your experiences when you share them with them. Mm-hmm. When you're like looking for a therapist, what are sort of the red flags or like, I feel like people go into therapy and they're worried. One, they like can't handle conflict. And two, they're like worried about saying like, oh, this isn't for me. Like, let's not continue this. Or they view, like you said, the therapist as a hero and the power dynamic is such where I think they don't realize like the therapist works for you. How do you sort of understand the right power dynamic in order to be like, okay, I'm, I'm choosing someone who will do this for me versus like offending someone by being like, you're not the right therapist for me. I I recognize like it's, I know it's super hard. I think it's hard for most of us to tell somebody like, oh, I don't think you're a good fit. But I think if you can go into, especially those first few sessions as you're getting to know a new therapist, really reminding yourself, this is a collaborative process. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for somebody who will walk alongside me on this particular journey in this part of my life and kind of at the end of sessions or during sessions checking in like do I feel like this is a therapist who's kind of holding my hand or wanting to understand the direction I want to go does it feel collaborative or do I feel like they are dominating the session and like as a therapist you can talk a lot (laughs) it's not so much about like how much they talk or don't talk but how comfortable does it feel and do you feel like you are the focus of session. Like that's, those are Mm. good markers. I don't have like a magic trick other than this is something to just like put on a post-it and remind yourself when you're in that (laughs) place of going, I am hiring a therapist. Right. Right. Like I'm looking for somebody who helps me do certain things. And so if, do I feel like this is the person who will help me along the way, as opposed to kind of feeling like, oh, well, I showed up and they're, t- they're going to tell me what I'm supposed to do with my life. Like, no, mm-hmm. that's nobody else's job to tell you how to live your life. But sometimes you might go in wanting that and then yeah. feel frustrated that that's not what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so do you find that to be sort of a common misconception that like you're going to this person for advice when they might not be in the business of, of giving advice? All the time. And, and I think that there is kind of like a balance. I, I kind of reject the idea of like fit therapist as like blank slate. Like we just sort mm-hmm. of sit there and we don't like, we have opinions and we are, you know, we do offer certain amounts of guidance. Like it's part of what sets us apart from your friend or, you know, whoever else in your life that might provide advice is that we do have training and expertise and knowledge to share. So we should be doing that. But ultimately I think again, going back to that, like therapy works when you build that relationship. So being able to say like, and you may not know that on the first session, like if you know, that's what you want, you should say that up front. Most likely your therapist is going to say, well, that's not how this works, mm-hmm. <laughs> but let's talk about how it does work. How, like I am likely to be directive and that you also are going to be frustrated and disappointed by some of those things. Like we all have those moments or most of us have those moments of wanting somebody to tell us what to do. Like, I don't know. I feel stuck tell me what to do, but you want to be able to talk about that. Like even that conversation, I think is very freeing and pulls you out of the feeling stuck or stagnant in your life. Like sometimes just talking about the fact that you would like someone else to maybe be in charge for a little while. <laughs> and like, what's making you feel that way? Why? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Why do you not want to have to make the decision? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to not make decisions. <laughs> me too. <laughs> And then 
wanted to, going back to that power dynamic, I found something that's really helpful is just the language choice and learning to refer to yourself as the client versus the patient. Mm -hmm. I feel like that gives you a lot, a lot more power and makes it feel more even than like what you were talking about of like, this person knows everything and I'm at their mercy the way you maybe would with like a heart surgeon. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then shifting over a little into theoretical orientation. So that's basically what type of therapy your, your therapist practices and specializes in. And I, and there's so much out there, but I feel like we only really ever talk about like talk therapy or CBT. So yeah. can you sort of discuss all the various options and how to sort of know what they do and what might and what's be right, right for you. For you, Yeah. Yeah. So there is, a, it's like an alphabet soup, right? Cause there's theoretical orientation things. So that would be things like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or some people may be familiar with like EMDR or EF, like, I'm just going to say a bunch of letters, right? It's like all <laughs> these different ways of doing things, but also like art therapy and play therapy and sand tray. Like there's all these different those are ways like techniques, right? Schools of thoughts, ways of kind of conceptualizing human beings and like how we interact. There's also like, if we take like a broader step back, and I think oftentimes I encourage people to start there is like, I'm an LMFT, I'm a marriage and family therapist. That's my license. But there are also clinical social workers and there are LPCs, licensed professional counselors, and there are substance, you know, certified substance abuse counselors. And so sometimes starting with like the license can be helpful because that's kind of like, well, what did you go to graduate school for? So mm-hmm. like, I am not a fan of like the name of my license as a marriage and family therapist, because it sounds very, very narrow. But the reality mm-hmm. is I spent all three years in graduate school, hyper-focused on understanding people in the context of their relationships. I work with lots of individuals, but we talk about like your family. We talk about you and your significant other. I do therapy with like close friends and roommates, right? Like I think about people in terms of interaction and relationships. Social workers also tend to think about people in terms of systems. Um, they tend to go beyond just your, let's say your fan, like your inner circle and your family, but they social workers in school learn more about like also how does that fit into community and in cultural mm-hmm. context, right? Like widening circles of systems. So if your concerns, whether you're going to therapy with another person or not, but if your concerns or the things you want to work on are very relational, then those are probably the kinds of therapist you want to look for. That's a good way to increase the odds that they have a lot of expertise in that area versus somebody who's a psychologist. Like psychologists also spend a lot of time learning about like analysis and testing and assessment. So if you're like, I think I have ADHD, I have ADD, and I want to learn how to manage that. A psychologist who then we want to ask questions like, is that a specialty of theirs? But like a psychologist might be a better fit if your goals are like, I've never been diagnosed and I want somebody who can thoroughly assess whether or not this is what's going on for me. But if you've been diagnosed and you're like, I just want to figure out how to like make, help me and my AD, manage my ADD in a way that doesn't impact my kid, right? My parenting, then you probably don't want a psychologist. You want less assessment and you want more like help me navigate relationships. So I, I think if you want like the easiest way to like begin to na- narrow it down, like start by kind of like license or like, like where did they get their graduate work? After that, honestly, my best piece of advice, tell get really clear about what you want to work on and just ask the therapist. Mm-hmm. It's just super helpful to be able to say, I want help doing X, Y, Z. I know that like I 
I think I'll respond better or what might be helpful for me is to have like some homework. I want to understand why I think this way. As a therapist then, because we do learn a lot of different theoretical perspectives. And so like CBT, lots of people know about CBT, but like CBT bits and pieces are great for lots of things, but it's not always the right choice depending on what you're looking for. And so you want to, it's a good way to also vet your therapist. How do they talk about this? Can you say what CBT or DBT or EMDR are? Yeah, absolutely. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, tends to focus on helping you basically manage cognitions and behaviors, which is basically how do I think about things? And then like, how do I change my behavior around those things? I think it can be really helpful for things, particularly for things like depression and anxiety. Um, A lot of people recommend it for kids. CBT is one of the theoretical perspectives that you'll hear about most because it is the most easily quantifiable. So it's the easiest study that we talk about at the most. Um, EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, the mouthful. EMDR is a very specific way of treating trauma. Uh, I am a big fan of it, although I am not certified. It's not something that I particularly do, but I work with a lot of clients with trauma. And so that's something that I recommend. A lot of people like it because it doesn't involve talking a lot about your trauma. It's not a lot of retelling your story. It's a very specific kind of, I'm reducing it into its simplest form. It's not this simple, but essentially it's kind of scaling how you feel. And then we use, some people use these like tappers in your hands, but basically our, we do this thing with like your eyes to help you basically reprocess the way your brain manages the trauma. That can be helpful. BBT is very popular for dialectical behavioral therapy for eating disorders, for people who are who have a borderline personality disorder. I like to think of it as skills for emotion regulation. Mm-hmm. And again, like there are lots of ways for us to learn to regulate our feelings better, but DBT is very specifically about kind of a lot of emotional regulation. Like what do I do when I get flooded with feelings? How do I manage them differently? I think you touched on something interesting, which is that fact that sometimes you can have multiple therapists. So if you have like, you know, your marriage and family therapist, but then you also really need to work through a trauma, you might refer your, your client yeah. to an EMDR therapist for a certain amount of time to work through that, right? Absolutely. And I think it's really helpful for people to think about that. One of the things that I love about running a practice the size of my practice is that we're able to do a lot of that stuff like collaboratively, which Mm -hmm. is kind of, again, going back to that, like therapy is meant to be collaborative and holistic so that I've got therapists who's really specialized in doing couples work where both partners are seeing somebody else in the practice do individual work and noticing that there, there has to be an ebb and a flow. Like all of that might be helpful and like your kids might need play therapy and it's also okay to like pause. Like this is a lot. So you know what? For a while, I'm just going to do like my individual therapy and then we'll come back to couples therapy or to mm-hmm. family therapy or something like that. Um, we had a question from a listener that was about people who find it too difficult to open up. Like they're too shy or they're too uncomfortable or they don't, they don't know how to talk about themselves or answer like what's going on with you. How do you break the ice, let's say, with like a new person? How do you get someone to be like, feel comfortable saying, cause I even still like all my therapists will be like, what's up with you. And I still sometimes feel like I want to impress. Her. <laughs> yeah. Like nothing, nothing. Everything is fine. I'm doing all the things that we've worked on. Everything yeah. yeah. It's a natural. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I think like the therapeutic relationship is so important and we have to be patient. 
to let that develop. I, you know, my advice is if you find it difficult to open up, that's actually a good reason to be in therapy in the first place. Like that by itself, because that's probably shows up in lots of other places in your life and like keeps you from feeling close or connected, keeps you from getting your needs met. And so some of this is also trusting your therapist. Again, like not a guru to be on a pedestal, but your therapist brings a certain level of like, that's part of what we went to school for. That's part of, you know, the 20 plus hours of continuing education we have to get. Like we should show up with a certain set of skills to be patient. And that looks different for everybody. Like for some of my clients, that means I ask a lot of questions, right? You know, I want to know about their childhood and I ask about their job and like, we will spend maybe a lot of our initial work together. is just me kind of being curious, asking lots of questions. For other clients, I think this is really true for like my adolescent, like when I used to do a lot of adolescent work. I don't know, we play Uno. What happened with your day, right? Like the consistency of showing up and having a person be really present. And I think this is, if I was going to get on my soapbox about why therapy is so helpful, um, like kind of at its core is, having a person show up for you consistently with like unconditional, we call it unconditional, like kind regard. I think you're a valuable person and I'm curious about you and your experience. And whenever you're ready to talk to me about that, I will be here, right? Like every week you're, we're going to show up for this hour and I'm ready to hear it. And whenever you're ready to share it, that until you experience it, I think it's easy to dismiss it as like, well, I don't know what to say. Like the words will come. Trust mm-hmm. me, I've been doing this long enough. The words always come. Like we all have a story about how we feel and what our life experiences are that we really do want to share. So we just need a little bit of time to trust that the person sitting in front of us wants to hear it. You're not judging. I mean, that's not your job to go. Like, you know, if someone tells you something that's really difficult, it took me a while to think that my therapist wasn't going to be like, that's not true. Or that my therapist wasn't (laughs) going to be like, Uh, that's stupid and you did a bad thing. It's hard to get out of the idea that like, oh, they're just judging me secretly. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I feel like I say often in lots of places. I I mean, I think even to like speaking to your own experience and speaking to even my experience, like you kind of have to live it, right? Like you have Mm -hmm. to, it's, it's in having the experience that you go like, oh, you really aren't judging me. Like, Mm -hmm. I can assure you that nine times out of 10, your therapist is hurt. Whatever you think is like horrible and like (gasps) terrible and like crazy, your therapist has heard things that object like other people would deem being like even worse or more salacious or more surprising. But more than that, I have a good friend and we talk about this all the time. Like, I love my client. Not in like a romantic, like, but like I have a, that's part of, I think, developing this profession is like, I have a deep compassion for every single person. Like there's a certain level of respect that comes with having the courage to say like, there's some aspect of my life that I'd like to be better. And I'm willing to make myself vulnerable to get there. And I think any therapist worth their salt has at a minimum always has that respect in their mind, no matter what you say to them in the room. And I I know you mentioned talking to your friends and your support network about looking for a therapist, but let's say nobody has anyone or those people are booked, like starting just like at like the blank slate, like where do we look? And especially if we want a therapist to be covered by insurance, which I know can be very tricky. Like, do you have any tips and tricks on that? Probably my, the go-to kind of like 
this probably works for everybody, wherever you live, whatever you're looking for. Psychology Today has like probably the most robust therapist directory. I encourage people to start with bigger directories and then begin to like narrow it down. So Psychology Today, Good Therapy is another good therapist directory. So these are websites that have- These are websites. Yeah. Yeah. Which- it's nice because it helps you to kind of going back to the like theoretical perspective and also things like gender, race, culture, you can filter those options. And even like insurance, you can filter those options in those larger directories to then get a list of people. And then I definitely will say, go to the person's website, Google them, see if they have got social media. The one nice thing that I'm starting to see more and more of um, is more therapists who are historically not online, have terrible <laughs> websites, do not get engaged on social media. I'm finding more and more really great therapists who are on Twitter, on Instagram, you know, making videos for YouTube, have quality websites. So like, I think use the internet is a much better resource than it was even like five years ago for finding a good therapist. But I definitely would lean towards start with like a therapist directory. There's also lots of like very specific ones like therapy for black girls or Ayana therapy. I like Ayana. It's newer. I like it because it basically is sort of like a directory, a matching service Mm. for all of the underserved groups when it comes to therapy. So black and brown people, LGBTQA, like if you fall into a category where you feel like it's hard for you to find a therapist who looks like you or um, understands kind of your particular orientation or experience, it's a good place to start. So even if you want to use insurance, start there because the focus in those places is more about the clinical service and then see if they take your insurance. Um, probably my secret trick is if you find a therapist and you're like, this is the one, they, this is it. Like, I like their face. I like what their website says, like all the letters. I Googled what the letters behind their names and like all their theoretical like perspectives they say they have. All of those really fit for me. And, you know, they're $200 a session and they don't take insurance. And I really, really contact that therapist. Mm-hmm. Some therapists have, will reserve like certain slots in their schedule for like reduced fee sessions. Right. Some therapists have associates who work like work under them, um, mm. who again are likely to share their kind of approach, but maybe less expensive. But also, we all have like networks of other therapists that we know and we like. And more often than not, be patient. We're all super slow at responding to emails. <laughs> We're really, really bad at that, just collectively. But. <laughs> I feel like more often than not, therapists are happy to refer you to somebody else. Like lots of times I I will get a message from somebody and say, my fee is what it is. I don't have any more openings like in my reduced fee slots. My my own associates are full, but here are three people that I know, right? That Mm -hmm. I think might be a good fit. And so then you're still getting that kind of personal recommendation. And I think that 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 goes a long way to finding things. I will also just make a side plug for like group therapy. Mm-hmm. People are very resistant to that, but especially if you find a therapist you really like who happens to be maybe out of your price point, ask them if they run groups. Like it is a bit much more inexpensive way to still get their expertise and 
being in a group of people who are working on the same things is actually very, very healing for a lot of us. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because before I learned more about group therapy, I was also resistant to it, but it is like proven to be just as effective as individual (laughs) therapy. And then you get this added bonus of feeling like you're helping other people, which I think could be really restorative. Absolutely. And that you're not alone. I thought my problems were so special that I went to Al-Anon and I was like, oh no, I'm a cog. I'm the same, I'm the exact same as all these people. But yeah, that's good for people who are like, I can't afford therapy. You know, those were all like great suggestions for that kind of thing. What is your thoughts on seeing somebody who is still getting their licensing hours? I am a huge advocate. So I will say maybe a third of my staff are somewhere in their residency. So if you're looking for free or low cost therapy, also that's, I'm glad you asked that question check the graduates programs that are in your area. You, yes, you're getting a student, but you're getting a student who like, they're fresh, they're new, they're super excited about therapy. And like, they kind of, they're reading the latest research. Mm -hmm. Unlike sometimes those of us who've been doing this a long time who are like tired and like, (laughs) we're reading one or two articles, like they're reading entire journals because they're in school. But also when you get somebody who is either, so like a clinical intern is a great way, I think to get, again, like very low cost, and sometimes free therapy, but they also like, they have multiple supervisors and other students and everybody weighs in on what's happening for you. Everybody shares their ideas, like behind the scenes. They don't all come in the room with you because that would be weird. <laughs> <laughs> but your sessions might be taped, right? So that might be what you're right. giving up in order to get free or, like or, free or reduced. Yeah, yeah. Or reduced exactly. Therapy. Yes. Yeah. So your sessions might be taped. It's still, co- to be clear, like it's still confidential. Like mm-hmm. they're not like, showing it like right. to like the, <laughs> like it's not YouTube or anything like that but it is oftentimes it'll be taped and or sometimes it'll be behind like a one-way mirror like where I went to school we had a one-way mirror so that's an option but I also like to I think there's not enough just general knowledge about like what it looks like to get your license as a therapist it's very similar to like being a doctor right and so like there's a period of time where you're an intern which means you're still in school but you're getting clinical work. And like, that's going to happen often, like at a university, then you graduate. And depending on what state you live in, you may need anywhere from 2000 to 5,000 hours of seeing clients Mm -hmm. after you graduate to get your license. And that's like your residency period. Some states will call it like, they'll call you like an associate, Mm -hmm. you know, counselor or a graduate social worker or something like that. I am absolutely an advocate for, if you can find, uh, somebody in their residency, absolutely go see them. Like they're, they are therapists. They are, they're, they finished all their training. They have hundreds of hours of clinical experience behind, mm-hmm. under their belt in order to graduate from school. And now they're just like in that journey. And so like, it's sort of win-win, um, especially if you can find somebody who maybe is charging a little bit less because they're in their residency, but they're just as good as many of us who have our license. And I think you're right in terms of, you know, they're being more up to date. They're probably a lot more trained in terms of cultural hum- humility. I know that my program at Pepperdine, we spend so much time talking about that. And even just things like informed consent and like the importance of like going over with your client at the beginning, like what they're consenting to, you know, mm-hmm. and and then for me to look back and be like, oh, when I've had therapy, no one's done that with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I think that like, the profession is getting more and more evolved. So the newer the therapist is, they might be more, you know, tied into that, that rhetoric, which is actually for the better. 
Absolutely. It really is. And I, and I think too, like going back to some of the personal preference pieces too, is like, you know, maybe you want a younger therapist. Well, mm-hmm. then they, they may very well be in their residency because, you know, that takes a little bit of time. And mm-hmm. we get a lot of families, a lot of parents who really, they love our residents for that reason. Like they have this enthusiasm and this energy and they are up on kind of where the profession is moving mm-hmm. uh, in the way that we approach kind of the work that we do, both culturally and also just very specifically techniques and things like that, things we do. If you're an underage person listening and you want to go to therapy, what does that look like? Like, I think when I was younger, I was like, they're going to tell my parents everything. So a good therapist working with somebody under 18 is very, very, you know, like they're going to be very upfront with you about the things that they're going to have to share with your parents. The level of confidentiality you are afforded varies state by state. There are states where you can be as young as 12, 13, 14. And you can essentially, it's like sort of this little carve out where you get Mm -hmm. to basically be an adult and say like, you can get your own medical treatment and that would include therapy. And you can say like, I don't want my parents involved. It gets tricky because also at that age, like you probably are not paying for your therapy. So parents get a lot more, but a good therapist, if you are under 18, your therapist should not be reporting back to your parents every session. Mm-hmm. They should be. And if they haven't, you should ask the question, what are the things that you have to tell my parents, which generally boils down to safety, which applies to really everything, every mm-hmm. client, right? Like if I think you're a danger to yourself, to others, reports of child abuse, reports of you know elder abuse, there's just some things that were mandated by law to like, we're going to talk about them. But if you're, wor- if you're working with somebody under 18, there are other things that you're like, oh, that's something we need to, your parents need to be involved if we're going to change that if we're going to address them, you know, I'm worried about your drug and alcohol use or your, you know, what's happening, you know, in your sexual, in your sex life, those kinds of things. A good therapist is also going to work with you around that. So if you're like, I am terrified of telling my parents that, and your therapist is like, but I think that we need to, then that should be part of the goals of therapy is like, okay, what will it look like? What are you afraid is going to happen? How can we work with you? Like, how do we work together to then bring your parents into this process so that they are supporters? as opposed to creating, you know, sort of more problems. And how do you kind of determine if like you are having these interpersonal problems, if the right choice is individual therapy, couples therapy, or family therapy? As a marriage and family therapist, I always, almost always lean towards, let's try to get everybody in the room because it's really nice. Oftentimes you get everybody in the room and one, two, or all of the people end up also needing some individual work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That's generally where we end up going. But I would say, I think the easiest way to decide is if you're not sure, like sometimes you're sure you're like, I, this isn't working, but I know I want support for me. Then you already know that you're going to do individual therapy. Then after that, it's really asking everybody else who's involved. And so if it's a family, asking your family members, right? Like if you're in a couple, asking your partner. And if your partner isn't interested in participating, then I would strongly encourage you to go ahead and do individual therapy. We got some questions about like, what if a parent doesn't want to go with me? Or what if like my partner doesn't want to go with me? What do I do? So I think in both cases, like you should go, let's start with a parent. Like if your parent is like, no, I'm not going, or I don't think this, you know, whatever you're, you should go, but I'm not going to participate. Mm-hmm. 
your therapist can really become an ally in that case of mm-hmm. kind of helping bring your parent along. That's particularly if you're younger. Mm-hmm. Most therapists who work with kids are going to kind of force the hand of parents and say like, you've got to participate to some degree if this is going to be effective. Mm-hmm. If you're an adult wanting an adult parent to come, we have a lot less leverage there. Yeah, the language that they kept using in the comments were, how do I convince my parents to come to therapy? How do I, or even not even come to, but I think they're saying, how do I convince my mom to go to therapy? And I think that what you said is so brilliant in that, like you should go and then you can, cause like, you're like, my mom has a problem. And it's like, yeah, but that's manifesting in you and you can't control her. Right. That the first step, if someone was like, well, how do I convince my partner? How do I convince my parent? Like you would recommend they, they go. You go and talk about the ways in which whatever it is that you see happening in that other person is impacting you. Right. And I would say you can invite people to go to therapy, whether that's for inviting them to go by themselves or inviting them to go with you. It's an invitation, but we can't convince people because at the end of the day, sort of going back to the whole, like it's collaborative. Mm -hmm. If they're not interested, it doesn't matter if they show up for the session and sit there for an hour week after week, if they are not interested in actually making changes, Mm -hmm. then there's not really anything anybody can do about that. So it is always kind of invitation, but I definitely lean in on start by you going yourself. The one sort of thing that I, I do like to point out to people, if we're talking specifically about like a romantic couple is couple therapy. It's not therapy with two individuals. It is therapy that is very much focused on how can I help you with your relationship? right? Like the relationship is kind of the client. And so if you have a partner who's unwilling to go, I do think that it's important. I strongly encourage you to still go by yourself because you need that support, but also to recognize that working on supporting you, like sometimes what's best for an individual isn't necessarily what's best for sustaining a relationship, right? Like, because now you're growing and the other person isn't, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go. It just means that that's something else to sort of talk about in therapy And to talk about with your partner, like, listen, I want to do this differently. And here's how I'm investing in doing that. I really would love it if you would participate with me so that we can grow together, as opposed to me just learning how to kind of manage whatever's going wrong here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if your partner is reluctant to go to therapy on their own, suggesting couples therapy can sort of be a gateway (laughs) to them becoming more comfortable with therapy and eventually doing individual therapy. Yeah, it definitely is. I don't want to make it sound like trick your partner into doing your individual (laughs) work by coming to couples therapy, but couples therapy can, I think is often kind of a place where it, it does feel a little easier. You're doing it together, but it also becomes a place where you can each kind of discover some things that may be more individual, um, Mm -hmm. that might require more individual work and then kind of branch off and do that stuff separately. And then just going back to sort of, again, like the different, like theoretical approach, sometimes you go in and it's like, I have problems in my present life that I need to figure out. Like I need, like, I'm currently having this issue at work. I'm having a pan, I'm having panic attacks. Like I am it's something that is very present. And then there's other times when it's like, I, I need to go back and I need to look at my childhood. I need to look at what brought me here, my history, you know? And I think that, how do you know? Cause I think sometimes there, there are therapists who kind of prefer one 
or the other yeah. to a certain extent. And so how do you know which is the right thing for, for you to address? And then how do you know how to find a therapist that's on the same page with you about that? Well, even as a client, you might go in and be like, I'm having panic attacks. It's about my daily life. And people are like, what was your childhood like? And you're like, it was awful, but let's go into these panic attacks. But I would argue if you're having panic attacks, that's what the therapist needs to deal with. They don't need to deal with, you know, like the first attack should be, you know what I mean? It was definitely like interwoven. So mm-hmm. I agree that whatever you come in with, that should be centered, right? Like, so if you're like, I'm having panic attacks, I want to like not have panic attacks. Absolutely. I think, and this, like, it's a, it's a balancing act sort of going back to the like therapists or people, right? Like as a therapist, sometimes like you're just having panic attacks. Like you, you know, I'll ask about your childhood and you'd be like, yeah, I had a great, you know, whatever. Like it was pretty stable, pretty normative. Um, There wasn't a lot of chaos, but I was always anxious, right? Like I was always an anxious kid or this thing just happened in the last six months. And like now all of a sudden I'm having panic attacks and we just are like, okay, so we're going to address that and that's all we're going to do. But I think a good therapist is also curious about are there deeper roots, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then you get to decide like, okay, we've figured out how to stop the panic attacks or manage the panic attacks. But in the process, we've started to touch on like, maybe those are rooted in some other things. Do you want to do that work or not? Right? Like you can say like, no, I feel good. The mm-hmm. panic attacks stop. Yeah, I know we had a bunch of sessions where we really tied it back to like the chaos of my childhood, but I don't want to do that now. I might not ever want to talk about those things. You get to make those decisions and then decide like, okay, maybe your therapy's over, right? I think it's more helpful to allow there to be some space for the process of therapy. Like Mm. part of the process is that you will, is that typically we unearth something, some, some things that are unexpected, right? And so sometimes maybe that's like, the trauma of your childhood or something that happened to you like in your early 20s, sometimes it's just recognizing like, oh, well, you know what? You're drinking 12 cups of coffee every day and you're not sleeping. And as it turns out, this thing that you keep saying is fine at work actually is creating a lot of anxious energy for you that you're not paying attention to. Like maybe that's all we unearth. That's okay. It doesn't always have to be kind of like this dramatic story. And then recognizing like you have the authority to say, this is what I want to work on. I don't feel ready for that. Well, I'm curious, like, what would it look like if we went into that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of decide. And I'm a fan of seeing therapy as being episodic as well. Like panic attacks are done, taking a break. And maybe in six months or maybe in six years, I'm going to come back and be like, you know what? I, I mean, I have lots of clients like that who are like, yeah, my last therapist and I like, three or four years ago, we really realized like my relationship with my mom really is affecting the way like I, my romantic relationships play out. Right. I'm finally ready to talk about that, right? Like <laughs> when you figured it out, you were like, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I don't, that's fine. I don't want to deal, but you get ready to do certain kinds of things and then you can choose it. So I think I would go back to the place of like being really upfront about what is it that you want to work on? And then feeling into like, how, how does my ther- the therapist respond to that? Because as a therapist, part of my job is also like being able to say to somebody, oh, that's not like really my area of specialty. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and, and, and sometimes you need different therapists at different times in your life, you know? So yeah. my therapist who I've worked with for, for like my, most of my twenties until into my thirties was of a psychodynamic background. And so Mm -hmm. 
I think that she really helped me a lot with like my interpersonal relationships and like navigating communication and all this stuff. But like now I'm on a, I'm on a break with her because I feel like I've gotten to a place where I'm doing well. I I've learned a lot from her and, but I could see in the future that I would need somebody who specializes in CBT because my OCD is still playing a bigger part in my life than ideally. (laughs) Yeah. That's like, that's not her specialty. And also I, I really connect with feeling like right now, I don't feel like dealing with that. I don't feel like Mm -hmm. doing exposure therapy. I don't have, I just don't have the time or the energy and, Mm -hmm. you know, but maybe a year from now I will go find a CBT specialist and, and just knowing that it's not this thing where you signed in and it's like your therapist for life. You can never take any breaks from them. You can never see other people who specialize in other things. I think hopefully it gives some freedom to the experience. I hope so. I I do feel like, I I really appreciate you saying that because I feel like a lot of times people feel like it's this lifelong commitment or or that you're going to go to therapy and I'm going to stay in therapy until I'm not, like until I'm fixed. Right. Right. Like we can be, I'm, sort of famous for saying like most things in life are both and right like we have to be able to hold two things you can have things that need to be worked on right like you mentioned like okay well OCD is like a little more than I would like it to you know it impacts me more than I want it to and I have a great life and like I'm doing fine and like things look good and this is a good place right like it Mm -hmm. can be both ands and I think sometimes when we for some people when we, we start therapy or think about therapy it's like I have to fix all the things that could be better it's like that's sort of part of being human. It's like, there are always things that we could be working on. And simultaneously, for the most part, we're also like good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're allowed to take a break or break up with a therapist. My partner had a whole saga where their therapist would not let them leave. <laughs> and what would, what should that ideally look like? Because I asked Allison at the time and Allison was like, uh, not that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that sentence alone, definitely, I'm going to, you know, second that, not that. It should not look like that. It should look like, so ideally, in an ideal world for both therapist and client, a client would say, you know what? I feel like I'm in a really good place. I feel like the things that were like my goals that I came in wanting to work on, I feel like I've gotten to like the place that I hoped to get to and I, I want to take a break or like I feel like I'm done with therapy. And the therapist will say, fantastic. I also think that you've, re- we've reached this place. And mm-hmm. then there's like a nice kind of closure, like termination session. You talk about like the things that you've learned, right? Like if there's skills you've picked up and things that you insights you have. And like uh, the questions I always like to ask is, you know, what's changed? Mm-hmm. What are you going to continue to do to kind of maintain that in your life? How will you know that it might be time to return to therapy? And that doesn't always mean re- as you said, right? Like it's not about returning to therapy with me, mm-hmm. but how will you know when you're at a place where you might want to return to therapy? And then that's kind of it. I'm not great at termination. Normally I say I'm bad at termination, but based on what you just said, I think I'm good. I don't, I'm not fighting. It, you're not, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to be better at terminations, but typically I will, what will happen is for a lot of my clients, we just kind of like step down. And it usually happens where it's like, life happens and you miss a session and then you miss another session. And then like, that's probably the more like realistic picture is that like you miss a couple and you think, Oh, I'm kind of okay. Right. Like your therapist goes on vacation or you go on vacation and you're like, I think I'm okay. And then you go to maybe 
every other week or like mm-hmm. once a month. And then you're just kind of like, are we done? Usually the therapist will be like, it feels like maybe we're done. I'm not seeing you as regularly or as consistently. Does it feel like we can be done? Mm-hmm. And then you, you say goodbye. Like, and, and I recognize that that can be hard to do, right? Like it's a special relationship, but it is a relationship that is designed more often to end at some point. And a lot of therapists view it as like, you're always my patient. So then like yeah. three years later, you can have a yeah. booster session or you can restart seeing them regularly, remembering that like, it doesn't always have to look the same. Right. And I think that yeah. transition from once a week to every other week to once a month is a really mm-hmm. nice way to do it. Because then you get that sense of like, I am, this is going well, or I feel this hole from not having more regular therapy. Maybe I yeah. need to go back. Yeah. to how often it was before. I like maintenance. I like maintenance yeah. therapy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I've got people who do once a month. I've got, you know, couples who will pop in once or twice a year just to kind of like touch base. And like, I think I like what you said about like, there's not one way that therapy has to look. I, I do think at the beginning of therapy, if you want to like have the most effective mm-hmm. experience, then once a week so that you, because it's also building a relationship, but like every other week, once a month, like it, there's, there's a lot of flexibility. This is something that you, you kind of, again, go back to collaborating with your therapist to figure out like what works, not just from a therapeutic standpoint, but also like what works financially, what works logistically yeah. with your life? Mm-hmm. Like, what can you do? What is feasible and what feels like it's an, it's right and enough for you at this particular moment. And this speaks to something that I think is, is changing in the field for the better is the ability or the normalization of teletherapy. Because for a lot of people, you know, I get this one hour for lunch, but I, that doesn't include the travel time that it takes right. to get to and from my therapist. Mm-hmm. So is there something to looking for therapists who offer teletherapy even in a post-COVID world? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, as somebody who offered teletherapy for years before COVID, this is going to sound terrible, but like, at my most like petty version of myself, it was sort of sweet for me to have lots of colleagues who were like, wait, how do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you using? Cause it was always a lot of like, oh, that's nice that you do that. But like, I don't think that that could be as effective as in-person mm-hmm. therapy. And what a lot of therapists who felt that way discovered was like, oh no, sometimes teletherapy is even more effective. Like there, there are actually some real benefits aside from just the ease of like, as you said, like for a lot of people, it's the timing, like you have an hour for lunch, but yeah, you can't get to and from, or it would be great to, you know, maybe you put your baby down at seven o'clock at night and that's a great time to do therapy, but uh, you can't leave the baby alone. So right? <laughs> it doesn't really work out. And so teletherapy is great in that way, but there's some benefits to it. I think from a clinical standpoint too, like I have couples who find it really, really helpful because they can, even though like theoretically in a room, you would see your partner, but you're both facing me. But mm-hmm. when you're on camera, you see each other. And mm-hmm. so like some of being able to like see the body language, wow. not just your partner's body language, but also your own body language, your partner says something and being able to actually notice how like maybe you pull away or the face wow. that you make, like those are things that can be super helpful. Um, also to your question, you know, earlier about like people who feel like it's hard to like open up and there's opening up with that extra distance of being on the screen as opposed to in person in like a cozy little office Mm -hmm. and make that more comfortable for a lot of people. So I I'm a huge fan of teletherapy. I mean, I listen, I love to see my clients in person. That's also really nice. 
um, I'm licensed in more than one state. So like I do have mm. a couple of clients where, you know, 98% of our sessions are teletherapy. But mm-hmm. if I happen to be traveling for work, it's nice that I can see them in person and have a couple of sessions. But I think it'll be a lot easier also for people to find because the pandemic really did force a lot of therapists to recognize like, oh, we have to adjust. That a lot of people who weren't offering it now are set up to be able to offer it. And I think that makes it, it makes it much easier, especially if you happen to live in a place where there's not a ton of therapists. Right Now your entire state is your pool of available therapists as opposed to whatever town maybe you lived in. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important thing to remember. Like when you're doing that initial search on like psychology today, that as long as they offer teletherapy, anybody in your state, they could be six hours away is licensed to help you. Exactly. Exactly. And then there's like all kinds of like little like rules and caveats of state by state, but with yes. any luck in the next few years, they will. That's what I'm hoping. We need just like a nice universal license because it would oh. make things so much better for people. Way better. And and then, you yeah. know, you move and you can, you can still see your therapist. Like there's this abrupt <gasps> thing where like you go through this huge life change of moving states and then you lose your ability to see this anchor. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. It's yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's not great. And, and again, it is that like, you know, some states are like, that's fine. You can do have 30 days. You can have 90 mm-hmm. days. Some states are like, oh, it's fine. We don't care if you're licensed. But like as long as you're licensed somewhere in other states, it's like, we don't care. You've moved here. You know, your therapist now needs to like yeah. spend several hundred dollars and lots of their time to try to get a license there, which is unlikely to happen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. I never even thought of that. On a certain extent, it makes sense because different states have different laws. So like, how would you know the law in that state, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to like psychiatric holds and just like different things. But yeah. I think a universal license would be helpful for yes. everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then before we move on to the next section, I just had one final question, which is basically like, how long should it take for you to feel like you've met the right therapist? Like, is this something you feel like most people know walking away after the first session? Like with dating, should you give them a second try? Like, <laughs> what's your sort of advice there? My experience is I would say most people know within the first session. Mm-hmm. I would say if by your third, like if by the third session, you don't feel a hundred percent like this is the person, which sometimes it's hard to tease out because sometimes you're like, I don't know if I want to be in therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not the therapist, it's the therapy that you're right. still like, I don't know if I really want to do this. <laughs> Different conversation. But I think by absolutely by the third session, if you don't feel like, I think a good question to ask yourself is, do I think that I can trust this person with my deepest, darkest, like the deepest, darkest bits of myself? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that by session one or two or three, you have to do it or even feel like you're there, but you should feel like I could see in the next month, six months, year, whatever. It's very personal, but I could, I can imagine getting to a place where I trust this person with the stories that I don't tell anyone else about Mm -hmm. how I think, how I feel or things that have happened to me. If by the third session, you can't imagine getting to that place. That's probably not the right therapist for you, but it also, and sometimes it's helpful to have that conversation. Sometimes like the therapist can help you parse out, is it a personality thing, you know, like, or like style therapy, or is that, I always leave a little bit of room for like, sometimes the reason that you can't get there is in fact the thing you need to be working on in therapy, right? Mm. Like nobody, like 
there's never, there's no person that you <laughs> can imagine trusting in that way, then that, then it's sort of like, okay, well, maybe I should stick around. But again, I think if you're at that place in your third session, ask your therapist and see how they respond to that. Mm-hmm. Not every therapist wants to do, like, is going to do that deep dig. When you're searching for a therapist, should you say, hi, I'm in this session, but I'm also looking at other therapists? You can, and it's probably a little bit helpful yeah. just because so that the therapist can also be asking some questions about like, what exactly are like understanding that like you're sort of still shopping mm-hmm. so that they're asking some questions about, well, what are you looking for? What would make this, how will you know that this is a good fit? Like, I think for most therapists that will change what we talk about in those first, in that first session or two, mm-hmm. where like somebody else who's like, I mean, if I don't like you, I'm leaving, but for the moment, like you're it with that client as a therapist, like I'm digging in, right? Like Mm -hmm. you came because you want to work on something. So I'm asking fewer questions about like the process of therapy and what you need, like, and I'm focusing much more on like kind of getting at the meat of what you're hoping to work on. Mm -hmm. What you're saying about how your therapist responds to these quote unquote conflicts or uncomfortable conversations Mm -hmm. will reveal so much, you know, if they make you feel guilty for seeing other therapists, that to me would be a signal of this isn't a great therapist. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Abort mission, get out, call somebody new. Right. Um, Yeah, definitely. Um, And we'll have another episode this month about bad therapy, but that mm-hmm. is a thing, you know, like in any profession, there are therapists who are not great at their jobs. And so <laughs> letting us have the inform- helping people have the information of how to spot that I think is, is really important um, yeah. or else, or else you just think therapy isn't for me. Right. Absolutely. I'm very excited about that episode. Most Fridays I do an Instagram live with a friend and a fellow therapist of mine, Erica, and we talk we often find ourselves circling back around to like bad therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a whole episode. It's going to be great. I love it. But it is like, it is a real thing. And and people are so uninformed about therapy in general. How would you expect them to be able to recognize bad therapy? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think it's something that I I love that you guys are going to talk about. And I think it's something as therapists, we should talk about more. I often say like, I think it's getting so much better, but I think unfortunately, somewhere along the way, we conflated confidentiality with secrecy. And so so Uh, many people mm -hmm. do feel like, they don't know what's supposed to happen. I don't know mm-hmm. how I'm supposed to feel in therapy, what I should expect from my therapist. And so, but you do, you have these experiences that are not helpful, that are sometimes damaging and mm-hmm. really detrimental to people. And you're not sure who to ask to have a benchmark of like, well, should I, like, it doesn't feel good, but I don't know, maybe this is how it's supposed to be. So I, like, I'm totally all about talking about when therapy goes wrong. Mm -hmm. We're so thankful that you are. And we're obviously going to have links to your info so that people can follow those Friday lives and learn a bit more about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. Uh, Stick around after the break. We'll be asking three questions. Welcome back to 
just between us, it's time for three questions. Ooh. So Esther, we set these questions ahead of time. This is something that we're doing for this mini season because I think it's really important to talk to therapists about their own relationship with mental health because it's not like you're, you came out of the womb and you suddenly knew everything that you own know now. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so the first question is, what is something you wish you had known about managing your own mental health when you were younger? I wish that... I could go back and tell my younger self that just talking about how you feel and like what you're going through in and of itself is really healing. Like I, I look back at like the youngest versions of myself that I think I, I struggled more than I had to. And I made some choices along the way that like I might've done differently if I had felt like it's a good thing for me to like actually open up and talk to people about how I feel. Yeah, I was just learning about that in class, literally like last night about like how just talking about your trauma is healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people don't, you know, people don't realize that because in the moment talking about it can cause such a rush of emotion and it can feel so uncomfortable, but it is like an important part of, of the healing process. Yeah. And absolutely. you just didn't feel like you could say anything or talk to anyone about how you were feeling? Yeah, I, I think like I think like a lot of people, I really fairly unconsciously adopted an image of myself as really having it together, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm smart, I'm ambitious, like I, I've got it, like I have everything figured out, which is also just like, you know, part of being young. Like <laughs> of course you that's what we all think. And then like the older you get, the more you're like, Oh, I don't I know nothing. I don't know anything <laughs> at all. <laughs> holding that part of myself that felt like I need to look like I have it together kept me from really talking about things. Right. And I think in certain, you know, families and certain communities, talking about this stuff is seen as a sign of weakness. Right. Um, and so unlearning that is, is really important. Yes. That can't be overstated mm-hmm. because as a black woman from a Caribbean family, with immigrant parents, Mm -hmm. I actually like hit the jackpot in terms of like a family who would have been very supportive and really was very open about talking about things and sharing your feelings and would have prioritized that. And still I internalized like this idea of myself as like not, not wanting to like be overly emotional and not like sharing Mm -hmm. so much. And so I think for anybody who's like, yeah, I see that, but that doesn't apply to me. Like, "Mm, but maybe it does. (laughs) I love the, but maybe it does. (laughs) That's an important (laughs) lesson for everybody. Um, So our next question is, what is something you're glad that you now know about mental health and that you implement into your life all the time? That putting yourself first is not selfish. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, like I am a firm believer that I am my best self in every area of my life and in every relationship because I have figured out how to prioritize me and what I need literally above everything else. I love that. That's been a journey of mine in the last couple of years. Someone had said to me, there's a difference between like selfish and self-protective. Oh, yeah. And boundaries. People always think boundaries are like hurting people's feelings, but it's similar to what you said about therapy where like, if you set a boundary and someone goes, that boundary hurts my feelings, that tells you about them. Yeah. Absolutely. I always like my favorite thing is I'm like boundaries are invitations. A boundary is yes. really an invitation for us to have a better relationship mm-hmm. with each other. Yes. You go to it. That's fine. That you're allowed to do that, but that's really what it boils down to. That's great. I think that word has a lot of negative connotations that it shouldn't have. 
Yeah. There's positive connotations for me. It's been life-changingly great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then our final question, what is something that you're still trying to learn and implement into your own mental health care? Rest. Mm. Rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I will back up and also say that like all, like all the things are always like a journey, right? Like it's always a little bit of a work in progress, but I would say right now it is about learning how to rest, how to like slow down and how important that is to my mental health, not just like my physical health, but like I need naps, I need vacations, I need to adjust my like work schedule. Mm -hmm. I need to make space for like, for nothingness. Mm -hmm. But that is equally important to whatever work I want to do and whatever like socializing I want to do. Like I need to have like a space that's out mm-hmm. slowing down. I think that's so true. And not how all of us are necessarily wired. Even, you know, yeah, like I was going to say, yeah. I can tell everything you said. I was like, okay, she's an overachiever. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Rest does not come naturally to me, yeah. but, but it's important and I'm working on it. That's amazing. Perfect. This was so wonderful. Um, before we let our interviewees go, we like to make them very uncomfortable by asking them to rate their experience. On the did, you have a, did you have a good time? <laughs> what could we do better? What did you think? If you want to create a rating scale of yeah. your own to, to give us, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> I am going to give you guys like 9.8 only because I want to leave room for like improvement, right? Like mm-hmm. as human beings, there's always a little bit of room. I, d- I don't have any like constructive feedback. Like you guys are great. This is so much fun. <laughs> I love all your three questions. And I'm excited to hear also the episode on bad therapy as soon as I can. Thank you so much. I love giving us something to strive for. (laughs) Classic overachiever. Yeah. (laughs) And where can people find you and follow your work? The easiest place to find me you can is to go to estherboykin.com. From there, you can find therapy is not a dirty word. You can find group therapy associates, which is my private practice. And on social media, I'm at Esther B M F T everywhere. But if you really want me to respond to you, you should find me on Instagram because I'm vaguely on all the other platforms. It's a good Instagram account, guys. It's very good. Thank you so much, Esther, for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news and at JBU Podcast, also at Emotional Support Lady and at Allison Raskin for Allison and for me at Gabby Road and also at BWM Pod for my other podcast, Bad With Money. Okay, love you. Bye. Bye. Forever Dog. <laughs>